This episode features discussions of suicide, murder, domestic violence, and racism that some people may find disturbing. We advise caution for listeners under 13. At 10.30 p.m. on June 12, 1994, Stephen Schwab finished watching a rerun of The Dick Van Dyke Show, just like he did every night. He had to walk his dog, so Schwab went on his routine evening stroll through Los Angeles' Brentwood neighborhood. Just before 11 p.m., he saw someone else's dog in the street. The fluffy brown-and-white Akita was all alone, barking in front of a house. It had been yelping in distress for the better part of an hour. Schwab saw that the Akita had an expensive red and blue collar, but it didn't display a name. Then he looked down. Its paws were covered in blood. Schwab thought this was strange, but his dog's paws sometimes bled from stepping on broken glass, so he figured this wasn't a huge deal. He headed home, but the Akita followed. Eventually, Schwab found a neighbor who was willing to take the Akita off his hands for the night. But once the dog got to their house, it couldn't sit still. It scratched at the door and sniffed windows. Something was wrong. The neighbors took him on a walk to calm him down. The dog didn't want to wander, though. It led them to a nearby condo where a woman named Nicole Brown Simpson lived. When the neighbors passed, they saw something lying on the ground, sprawled over the steps just inside the gate. It was Nicole's body, and it was covered in blood. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first of two episodes on the O.J. Simpson murder trial. In 1994, prosecutors charged the famous football star with two homicides. But the trial was fraught with questions, especially surrounding one of the investigators— Detective Mark Furman had a racist past, and the police allegedly mishandled evidence at the crime scene, perhaps intentionally. Today, we'll cover Simpson's volatile relationship with his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson. We'll also discuss her murder and that of her friend, Ron Goldman. Finally, we'll examine the subsequent trial, which exposed America's deep racial divides. Next time, we'll explore the most popular conspiracy theory about the O.J. Simpson case, that racist police officers framed him for the crime. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The O.J. Simpson trial may have been the biggest pop culture flashpoint of the 20th century. If you're old enough, you likely remember exactly where you were when the jury read its verdict. Chances are, you were in front of a television set. 150 million people tuned in to see whether one of the most famous football players of all time would be convicted of double homicide. Race played a huge factor in whether people thought Simpson did it. According to a Los Angeles Times poll, black people were more than four times more likely than white people to think he was not guilty. They had reason to be suspicious of the prosecutor's arguments and the Los Angeles criminal justice system overall. The Simpson trial came soon after police brutally beat an unarmed black man named Rodney King. The cops apprehended King on March 3, 1991, after a high-speed car chase through the city. King was on parole for robbery, and the police suspected him of driving under the influence. Once they pulled him over... Four police officers kicked him repeatedly and beat him with batons 56 times. The attack lasted for 15 minutes while more than a dozen other policemen watched. Nobody intervened to stop it. They fractured King's skull and he suffered permanent brain damage. A year later, a jury acquitted all of the police officers involved, even though the whole incident had been caught on camera. When the LAPD arrested a prominent black celebrity just two years after the King verdict, naturally, many Angelinos suspected foul play. Simpson didn't seem to fit the bill of a ruthless killer. He was a handsome and wealthy celebrity, always smiling and universally adored. He'd carved out a lucrative niche for himself in entertainment, acting in popular movies and doing commercial spots for a car rental company. He owed this fame to his young years on the gridiron. Long before he was an alleged murderer, Simpson was football royalty. Orenthal James Simpson grew up in San Francisco and played college football at USC in the late 1960s. He shattered records in front of national audiences, leading the country in rushing yards each of his two seasons there. His second year at USC, he won the Heisman Trophy, college football's most prestigious award. 
Then he declared for the NFL draft. Once he went pro, Simpson was an unstoppable running back. He could sprint 100 yards in nine and a half seconds, making him impossible to catch in the open field. He was a star. Simpson was on top of the world in 1977 when he met Nicole Brown. She just turned 18 when 29-year-old Simpson noticed her working in a Beverly Hills club. At that time, Simpson was married to his first wife, Marguerite Whitley. They had two kids and were expecting their third that year. But by this point, their relationship was mostly a formality. Simpson had cheated on Whitley throughout his football career, and he didn't let his wife get in the way of asking Nicole out. Nicole even moved in with Simpson while he and Whitley were still married. They finally divorced in 1979, the same year Simpson retired from the NFL. Simpson married Nicole in February 1985, eight months before she gave birth to their daughter, Sydney. He achieved another personal milestone that year by being inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. He thanked Nicole in his acceptance speech, saying she was something of a godsend, that she had appeared during a difficult point in his career and somehow turned those years into, quote, the best of his life. When they were out and about, they seemed like a happy couple. But behind the scenes, Simpson was possessive and controlling. Friends recalled spotting bruises on Nicole's arms and neck. She was scared of Simpson and called the police on him repeatedly. One of her most notable 911 calls happened on January 1st, 1989. Two police officers came to their house after midnight. Nicole ran out to meet them wearing just her bra and a pair of sweatpants. She screamed, quote, he's going to kill me. Nicole had choke marks around her neck, a black left eye, and a cut and bloodied lip. She told Officer John Edwards that Simpson had slapped her, punched her, and pulled her by the hair. The cops put Nicole in their car to keep her safe, but she didn't calm down. She complained that she'd called the police on her husband eight times before. They never did anything to help. Before the police could address her concerns, Simpson came out of the house in his bathrobe. He insisted this was a private family matter and didn't want the police involved. The officers weren't having it. Edwards told Simpson to put clothes on so we could take him to the police station. Moments later, more police officers arrived at the scene. Edwards and his partner turned to debrief them, and Simpson seized the opportunity to flee. He climbed into his car and sped away. Five squad cars chased his blue Bentley through Los Angeles, but they eventually lost him. The suspect had escaped, but the police obviously still had an eyewitness, Nicole. But by the next morning, she wasn't talking either. Her tone shifted, and she downplayed the incident to the authorities. It's unclear why her attitude changed so quickly, but Nicole insisted she didn't want to escalate any further. However, the detectives had enough evidence from the night before to still press charges. Later that spring, Simpson pleaded no contest to spousal battery, paid $700 in fines, and agreed to go to counseling. Apparently, none of this helped Simpson move past his abusive tendencies. In 1992, Nicole filed for divorce. But even after they worked out child support and custody arrangements, Simpson wouldn't leave her alone. 
In October 1993, he screamed at Nicole when he found pictures of her with an old boyfriend in a photo album. Later that evening, he kicked in the back door of Nicole's house. She called 911 and Simpson was still at the scene when police arrived. But for some reason, they didn't press charges. One of Nicole's new boyfriends claimed that Simpson followed them around. When they were eating out at restaurants, he showed up. On one date, Simpson spied on them through Nicole's window. On June 7, 1994, a woman fitting Nicole's description called a women's shelter in Santa Monica to complain that her ex-husband was stalking her. Nicole was murdered five days later. Coming up, evidence points to Simpson as his ex-wife's killer. Hi there, it's Carter from ParCast. If you haven't had a chance to check out the riveting true crime series Solved Murders, there's no better time to tune in. Throughout the month of August, Solved Murders is featuring four celebrations that took a turn for the deadly in a special series we're calling Party Fowls. From a murder in the New York nightclub scene and a house party gone horribly wrong, to a terrifying evening at the Tate residence and a sex party with sinister results. Go deeper inside for affairs remembered for all the wrong reasons. And if you like what you hear with Party Fowls and want to uncover more of history's most captivating cases, be sure to follow Solved Murders on Spotify. There you'll find a new episode released every Wednesday. Solved Murders is a Spotify original from ParCast. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. On June 12, 1994, Nicole Simpson had dinner with her friends and family at the Mezzaluna restaurant in L.A.'s Brentwood neighborhood. She was friendly with one of the waiters there named Ron Goldman. After they left, Nicole's mother realized she'd left her glasses at the restaurant. Goldman offered to come over after his shift to drop them off. But Goldman wasn't the only person driving through Brentwood late that night. Nicole's ex-husband, O.J. Simpson, had to make a red-eye flight to Chicago. A limo driver came to pick him up from his house at 10.25 p.m. Simpson wasn't there. The driver rang the doorbell several times, but nobody answered. About a half hour later, Simpson finally greeted him, saying he'd overslept. The driver took Simpson to the airport, and he barely made his flight. By the time Simpson was in the air, his ex-wife was dead. Just after midnight, Nicole's dog led her neighbors to her slain corpse. They called the police, who soon found a second body, Ron Goldman. Her friend from the restaurant was dead in the nearby bushes. Both had been stabbed multiple times. The crime scene investigators found three items on the ground next to Goldman's body. A hat, a blood-stained envelope, 
and a leather glove. Bloody shoe prints lined the path, presumably showing the route their killer had taken. Even though Nicole had been divorced from Simpson for about a year and a half, the brutal murder of a celebrity's ex-wife was sure to be front-page news. The police then went to Simpson's home as a courtesy so he wouldn't learn about the crime from the coverage. The only car on his street was a white Ford Bronco. It was parked crookedly, like someone had left it in a hurry. Some of the lights in the house were on, but the police couldn't tell if anyone was home. Detective Mark Furman examined the Bronco more closely. He saw a small stain above one of the door handles. He couldn't be certain, but it looked a lot like blood. That merited more investigation. One of the officers hopped the fence and knocked on the door. Cato Kalin, a friend of Simpson's who was living in his guest house at the time, answered. He groggily admitted that he didn't know if Simpson was home. The police didn't have a search warrant yet, and without one, they weren't supposed to enter Simpson's property without his permission. But Furman wandered around to investigate anyway. On a leaf-covered path behind the house, he reportedly spotted a dark object that looked sticky. It was a bloody glove, matching the one by Goldman's body. Suddenly, Simpson was the top suspect in the homicide case. And this was all before he had been officially notified of Nicole and Goldman's deaths. When police finally reached him at his Chicago hotel, he sounded rattled upon learning the news. O.J. was heard saying, Oh my God, Nicole is killed? Oh my God, she's dead? Interestingly, Simpson never asked how Nicole had been killed or why. Maybe he already knew. Simpson immediately returned to the airport to make his way home. But before he could get to Los Angeles, law enforcement combed through his property. They still didn't have a warrant, but apparently this wasn't enough to dissuade them from gathering evidence. Detectives found a trail of blood from the street to Simpson's front door, which continued into his home. Only after they uncovered this evidence, law enforcement ordered a search warrant. By the time Simpson arrived home around noon on June 13th, the police were ready to arrest him. They took him to the station for questioning. Little progress was made, though. Simpson denied any involvement in the murders. The police collected genetic samples from him, and then he went home. Over the next two days, the DNA tests came in. The bloodstains on Nicole's driveway matched Simpson's type, and the glove behind his house appeared to have traces of his blood as well as that of the two victims. Detectives concluded there was more than enough evidence to charge Simpson with two counts of first-degree murder. At the behest of his newly appointed lawyer, Robert Shapiro, Simpson agreed to turn himself in. The day after Nicole's funeral, he was set to face arraignment. However, in one of the most infamous moments in pop culture history, Simpson ran away instead. He was supposed to surrender by 11 a.m. on June 17, 1994, but he told Shapiro that he wanted to take a shower and chat with his family. He said he'd come to the police station after he left his friend Robert Kardashian's house. By noon, Simpson still hadn't shown. The police went to the Kardashians to apprehend him, only to find he wasn't there. The LAPD declared Simpson a fugitive. 
They searched the city, but there was no sign of him. With few viable options, they even appealed to the public with a 2 p.m. press conference. The LAPD made it clear anyone helping Simpson evade the law would be prosecuted. The threats didn't generate any usable tips. At 5 p.m., there was still no sign of Simpson. Shapiro held another press conference, this time urging his runaway client to surrender. Finally, this public appeal generated a lead. One L.A. resident had been watching the news all day before he'd gotten into his car and hit the freeway. On the road, he spotted Simpson in a white Ford Bronco some five minutes from Nicole's gravesite. He called Highway Patrol. Cops descended on the Bronco in Santa Ana, a city south of L.A. Simpson was in the back seat while his friend and ex-teammate Al Cowlings drove because Simpson sat with a gun to his head, threatening to kill himself. The police were cautious about closing in. They didn't want Simpson to take his own life. So they slowly tailed him around the Southern California freeways while the minutes ticked by. News helicopters flew above the action, broadcasting the footage to the public. 95 million Americans watched the chase for two hours on live television. The audience glued to their screens was larger than the 1994 Super Bowl. Every broadcast channel nationwide interrupted their programming to broadcast the pursuit. Los Angeles streets emptied as people clamored for a TV. Many cheered Simpson on by his football nickname, screaming, The juice is loose. The turnout in majority black Los Angeles neighborhoods was especially prominent. Spectators in Watts and Inglewood saw a renegade boldly resisting what many considered a racist police force. But when Simpson passed through whiter neighborhoods like Bel Air, the frenzy was more subdued. The Los Angeles County District Attorney, Gil Garcetti, acknowledged Simpson's fans in a press conference during the chase. He said, many of us perhaps had empathy to some extent. We saw the fall of an American hero. But let's remember, we have two innocent people who have been brutally killed. The city officials were in a no-win situation. They wanted to bring Simpson to justice, but they couldn't pursue him aggressively while he still had a gun in his hands. Instead, they pled with him to drive home and surrender. Despite the ongoing chase, he seemed open to the idea. While Simpson negotiated over the phone, a team of 25 SWAT specialists assembled at his house, ready to arrest him. Once Cowlings finally drove him home at around 8 p.m., the police let Simpson dawdle in the car for a good hour. And finally, near 9 p.m., Simpson stepped out of the car. He called his mother, emotionally preparing for his arrest. He was taken into custody peacefully. Three days later, Simpson pleaded not guilty at his arraignment, meaning the case was going to trial. In September 1994, more than 200 candidates reported for jury duty as Simpson's trial was set to begin. Five weeks later, a majority black and female group were selected. Analysts watching the case thought black people were generally more supportive of Simpson and more skeptical of law enforcement, which meant the jury might be more inclined to issue a not guilty verdict. 
Millions of viewers would make their own judgments from home, thanks to television broadcasts from the courtroom. The opening statements began in January 1995. The prosecution, led by Deputy District Attorney Marsha Clark, claimed that Simpson's charismatic public persona was a facade. Behind the celebrity hid a violent man who wanted to control his ex-wife. When he couldn't, he killed her. She also pointed out that blood and hair samples connected Simpson to the crime scene. The defense spoke six days later. The high-profile case had attracted ace attorney Johnny Cochran, who is known for captivating courtrooms. His clever turns of phrase and impassioned speeches were angled towards Simpson's innocence. Cochran argued that the incompetent LAPD had, quote, contaminated, compromised, and corrupted the DNA evidence in this case. This was true. One crime scene investigator testified that he'd picked up Nicole's phone without wearing gloves or dusting it for prints. He said he'd never been trained on how to protect a crime scene. An LAPD criminalist also admitted that she'd failed to swap out her latex gloves when handling different evidence samples. But prosecutors argued these small mistakes wouldn't change the validity of DNA evidence. And there was a lot of it, which all seemed to incriminate Simpson. Prosecutors highlighted that bloodstains throughout the crime scene matched Simpson's DNA. An LAPD forensics expert matched the glove found at Simpson's house with the one at Nicole's. He also testified that fibers from Simpson's Ford Bronco were found at the crime scene. The prosecutors even had incriminating shoe analysis. Detectives found bloody prints from an expensive pair of Italian loafers at the crime scene that were consistent with prints found in Simpson's car. But Simpson's defense team countered with the argument that the cops could have planted some of it. They focused on Detective Mark Furman, a 19-year LAPD veteran. He was one of the first officers to show up to Nicole and Goldman's crime scene. As we discussed earlier, he also participated in the warrantless search of Simpson's property and found the bloody glove outside the house. Simpson's counsel painted Furman as a longtime known racist. They played tapes in which Furman repeatedly used racial slurs and bragged about police brutality. Then they implied Furman had tampered with the bloody glove to implicate a prominent black person. Later on in the trial, Simpson even gave a demonstration that suggested the glove couldn't possibly be his. On June 15, 1995, prosecutors handed Simpson the glove to try on, but he couldn't fit it over his knuckles. Ever the showman, Simpson struggled to slide it to his wrist. He flexed his fingers, then faced the jury and said, quote, too tight. Reporters Stephanie Simon and Bill Boyarski wrote in the Los Angeles Times that the jurors were, quote, clearly spellbound by the show. There are plenty of reasons why a glove that might have once fit Simpson had become too snug. It could have been too bulky on top of the latex gloves he wore. It's also possible it shrank after being locked up in storage for too long. Wherever the truth lies, the demonstration made the prosecution look foolish and supported the defense's claims that the glove had been planted. Three months later, during his closing statement, 
Cochran brought one more of his signature lines. He said, quote, if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. The prosecution closed out in even starker terms. Prosecutor Christopher Darden said, quote, he is a murderer. He was also a great football player, but he is still a murderer. Ultimately, the jury had to decide on what they thought was the truth. As they adjourned to deliberate, Simpson and the entire world waited with bated breath. Coming up, the Simpson verdict sparks controversy. Now, back to the story. O.J. Simpson's 1995 criminal hearing has been called the trial of the century. Prosecutors presented a wealth of DNA evidence implicating Simpson in the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole, and her friend, Ron Goldman. But the defense countered with the argument that the LAPD had planted the clues to frame him. Opinions about Simpson's guilt or innocence were divided along racial lines. The defense's claim that racist cops had framed him struck a nerve in the black community. Many black Americans were fed up with an oppressive, biased criminal justice system. They hoped this case would strike a long overdue blow against discriminatory policing. The LAPD was no stranger to racist controversies. After a string of black people died from police chokeholds, the police chief Daryl Gates said, quote, In some blacks, when it is applied, the veins or arteries do not open up as fast as they do in normal people. This callous statement sparked outcry throughout Los Angeles. Many saw how Gates' comments fit a larger pattern in which the criminal justice system seemed to devalue black lives. Just two weeks after police officers brutalized Rodney King, a Korean-American grocery store clerk shot and killed a 15-year-old black customer, Latasha Harlins. She didn't do any prison time for the homicide. Some black activists cited the Simpson case as the most public example of the kind of police misconduct that happened all the time in black communities. Los Angeles officials worried a guilty verdict would incite a race riot. At least one local college put its police force on 12-hour shifts. The city positioned horsebound officers around the Los Angeles County Courthouse. Advisors briefed President Bill Clinton on security protocol in case violent mobs sprung up across the country. Everything hinged on the forthcoming verdict. After only four hours of deliberation, the jurors sealed their results to be announced the next day. On the morning of October 3rd, 1995, the courthouse was a zoo. NBC had 40 camera crews on standby, while ABC jockeyed for interviews with each juror. 150 million people watched the judge's clerk read the results on television. Simpson was not guilty. Right after the clerk uttered those two words, Ron Goldman's sister shrieked in despair. His father later said that was the second worst day of his life, only behind his son's murder. The prosecutors were shell-shocked. Attorney Christopher Darden struggled for words when reporters asked for comment. On the flip side, one of the jurors flashed Simpson the black power fist in solidarity. It later came out that this juror was a former member of the Black Panther Party, which had slipped through the cracks during jury selection. 
since the Black Panthers were a black rights organization that fought against police brutality, the affiliation might have swayed him towards voting not guilty. He wasn't the only person who was rejoicing. Most of the defense celebrated while Simpson let out a deep sigh of relief. He was a free man. Simpson left the courthouse and returned to his Los Angeles mansion, where his friends greeted him with a welcome home party. The mood across America as a whole, though, wasn't so chipper. Polls showed that more than half the country thought Simpson was the killer. The disgraced football player lost a $20 million TV deal and his agent dropped him. Those who'd once embraced Simpson now ostracized him. His celebrity was dwarfed by the trial's outcome. People even left restaurants upon his arrival. And while he'd avoided a criminal conviction, he wasn't out of legal trouble. In 1996, Nicole and Goldman's families filed a civil suit against Simpson. They wanted him to be financially liable for the killings, even if he'd been criminally exonerated. The civil plaintiffs had learned from the prosecution's missteps in the criminal trial. They were better equipped to quell rumors that DNA evidence was contaminated. They also established Simpson's history of violence by painting a fuller picture of how often he'd stalked his ex-wife after the divorce. They poked holes in Simpson's alibi and noted that he'd failed a lie detector test two days after the murders. In February 1997, the jury ruled against Simpson. The court ordered him to pay Nicole and Goldman's families compensatory damages to the tune of $33.5 million, which has doubled today. The ruling stoked the growing feeling that the prosecutors had botched the original case. And this wasn't the last time Simpson would find himself in court. In September 2007, Las Vegas authorities charged Simpson with six felonies for an entirely different case involving an assault at the Palace Station Hotel. Simpson was being prosecuted on charges of coercion, kidnapping, armed robbery, assault with a deadly weapon, burglary, and conspiracy. Exactly 13 years after his infamous acquittal, a jury convicted him of all of the charges. The judge sentenced him to 9 to 33 years in prison, while insisting nobody involved in this hearing had been influenced by the murder trial. But it's hard not to think that Simpson's alleged violent past had finally caught up to him. Simpson idled at Lovelock Correctional Center until 2017. Nevada officials released him on parole in October. As a 70-year-old man, free for the second time, he kept a lower profile. Save for a Twitter account where he gave sports commentary, Simpson stayed largely out of the public eye. But the public hasn't quite forgotten about him. Even today, books, movies, TV shows, and podcasts relitigate his trial ad nauseum. Many want to find the smoking gun that would finally implicate Simpson. This could be because a key piece of evidence is still missing, the murder weapon. In 1994, detectives searched far and wide for the blade that had killed Nicole and Ron Goldman, but they never found it. Or at least officially. There was an update in 2016, 22 years later. The LAPD procured a knife that had allegedly been found near Simpson's old mansion. 
A construction worker said he found it in the late 1990s, sometime after Simpson's home was demolished. Unsure what to do with it, he handed it off to a police officer who worked at a movie set nearby. But this cop never turned it in. He kept it as a souvenir for almost two decades, until right before Simpson was released from prison on his 2007 burglary charges. The officer, who's since retired, said he didn't disclose the knife earlier because he thought the case was closed. It wasn't. While Simpson can't be retried for murdering Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, the investigation is still open. If police identify another suspect, they can still take that individual to court. The police officer's failure to turn over the knife could have allowed the real killer to slip through the authorities' fingers. And a cop mishandling evidence connected to Simpson rings a familiar bell. The very same one Simpson's own defense team rang over and over again. A corrupt police force wanted to frame him. Next time, we'll explore the biggest conspiracy theory tied to the O.J. Simpson trial and the basis of his entire defense, that racist police officers planted evidence in a plot against him. The O.J. Simpson saga captured America's attention because it touched on the live wires of race, celebrity, and criminal justice. It's no wonder it fascinated the general public and continues to do so today. It may feel like the media coverage has been squeezed to a pulp, but lingering questions suggest there's still more to discover. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next time with part two on the O.J. Simpson case. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Jackson Knapp, with writing assistance by Angela Jorgensen and Mackenzie Moore. Fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, listeners, it's Carter. Here's a quick reminder to check out the Solved Murders four-part special Party Fouls. Every Wednesday in August, take a closer look at four celebrations that ended in horrific fashion. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Solved Murders. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.